Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this conference. We thank you for all the wisdom, all the knowledge that, be, that is being imparted. May it help to serve us so that we may be better servants to you and serve others. Amen. Amen. So I'm going to call this gentleman's name Bob. I was working in Zanesville, Ohio, which was recently in the news. You guys heard about Zanesville, Ohio, the guy who had the wild animals that escaped? And uh, so I was working in Zanesville, Ohio. I was living in Columbus at the time, and I was working a night shift. Zanesville, Ohio, back then, was it, it's a rural community, and I've noticed certain things about rural communities. People really tend not to come into the ER until they really have a serious concern. If you're working in the suburbs, you'll see, I can't sleep. You'll see, you know, I was at Walmart, so I decided to have you come check out this bump I had on my toe. But in Zanesville, people came in, they were concerned about something. So it's the end of my shift, and at the end of any ER physician's shift, they always want to leave, but they also want to leave everything clean, wrapped up, everybody admitted, everybody dispositioned. You don't want the guy coming on to inherit any really bad cases. And a nurse runs up to me, grabs me by the arm, and says, this guy doesn't look too good. So my pulse rate goes up every time I see an ER, uh, ER nurse run, especially an experienced one. And so she dragged me to, I believe it was bed two, and there's Bob in bed two, perfectly still. There's a lady sitting next to him in a chair, and she's nervously tapping her foot, she's dabbing at her eye, she's flushed. And uh, I look at his EKG, and he is having a heart attack, okay? SD elevation MI, so he's definitely having a heart attack. And so the wife, as I arrive there, I, I don't even think I introduced myself, the wife just spontaneously gives the history. You know, my husband Bob, he's a, he's a trucker, and um, he was, uh, just start, woke up about three hours ago and had some indigestion, he complained about it, and uh, he wanted to see the, his doctor later that day, but then he broke out into a sweat and he just didn't look good. So I told him, no, we, we've gotta go to the emergency room. And she wanted to call an ambulance, but Bob said, uh, no, you know, he's, uh, I, I really don't want to go to the ER. Can, can, you just, can we just go to the doctor later on? She said, no, I think we need to go now. And so he refused an ambulance, but she drove him into the emergency room. So I lean over Bob's bed and I say, hey, Bob, um, are you having any chest pain now? And he says, no, not really. And as he says that, the monitor goes up, goes off. I see squiggly lines and his eyes roll in the back of his head, and he goes into what we physicians call ventricular fibrillation uh, as a consequence of the heart attack he's having right now. So back then we had the paddles that you actually applied to the chest. You know, now we have the pads you put on. You don't even have to make contact with the patient. And so we put him on, we, sh we shocked him, applied some electricity to the heart. Boom, first shock, he comes back. So I go, Bob, are you having chest pain now? He's like, no. And uh, you know, he, uh, he continued to uh, just sort of deny that he was having any pain. He said he just had a little bit of indigestion. So Bob, I remember Bob for two reasons. This is the first reason. Bob asked me a question, and the question that he asked me was, why is this happening to me? This is what I remember about Bob. And at that point, I knew a little bit about what we would call the health message. Um, I hadn't, I'd, I'd been educated at the University of Michigan where their motto was knowledge heals. We have all the medications in the world, we have all the therapeutic modalities in the world that can cure you. So I thought about Bob's question and I, 
I started saying some things, and I, the things that I said, well, Bob, you're a trucker, right? He says, yeah. I said, they don't have really good food at those truck stops, do they? He says, no. I said, they're pretty greasy, aren't they? He said, yeah. I said, we'll start eating more fruit and vegetables, okay? I said, Bob, well, guess what? Bob goes into V-fib again. I've got to shock him, boom. Immediately, he comes back. So I up the lidocaine drip, give a rebolus some, and I, you know, I said, Bob, you remember what we were talking about? He's like, yeah. And so throughout that morning, uh, for the maybe 30, 40 minutes that I was with Bob, we talked about what I would call healthcare management, lifestyle changes. I told him, uh, do you smoke? He said, yeah, stop smoking. I said, do you go to church? No, but my wife goes to church. I said, well, why don't you go to church with her every week? I said, I find going to church every week, that sort of relieves my stress. So that was it. I had called a physician in Columbus, Ohio. I got him transferred to a tertiary care facility. They did a cardiac catheterization on him, I, I suppose. I don't know. Bob got lost, as all my other patients that I've seen, until six months later, seven months later, I'm working in the ER, and the ER secretary says, hey, we've got a patient who wants to talk to you. And I'm thinking, well, you know, in the emergency room, you see all types of patients, and you see intoxicated patients, angry patients, and I'm thinking, I don't live in Zanesville. Who wants to talk to me? You know, someone upset, someone irate. And I walk out, and I look at this guy like, boy, this guy looks familiar. And he says, hey, doc, I just had to stop by and thank you. Um, I was picking up my medical records, and I just had to tell you thanks. And I said, hey, you're Bob, yes. And he said he'd lost 30 pounds, he'd quit smoking, he started going to church with his wife every week, and he came back at that point a changed person based on an extremely brief encounter that I had with him. This is an absolutely true story. I still have his EKGs to prove it, if any of you guys want to see them. Um, so the, uh, the point is, do you think what happened to Bob that night changed his life? Yes. But I'd submit to you, Bob's experience actually changed my life a lot more than it changed his. Because after that, I realized the, the uh, importance of what, what I would call healthcare management versus disaster management. You know, healthcare management is uh, the, uh, what I would call our health message, health reform message. Um, something that was found in the Bible 6,000 uh, years ago or 1,500 years ago when Moses wrote uh, Genesis. Um, Daniel reiterated it, and uh, Ellen White in Ministry of Healing speaks about it. If you want to read something uh, more uh, modern, you can re read Neil Nedley's book. But basically, this was healthcare management, and that impacted my life. I submit to you more than it impacted Bob's life, because after that, I got really interested in medical missions. After like 1994, 95, I started a travel with a friend, friend of mine uh, to Jamaica. Um, um, after that, I be became involved with this uh, company called uh, United Hands. After that, I became more interested in doing lifestyle type things in the church. So I submit to you that um, influence, the influence you have on other people's lives is actually returned to you. And it influences your future behavior because you want, to be, you want to be consistent in your behavior. As human beings, we're hardwired to be consistent. It's one of, the, one of the psychological principles. And if we're consistently treating 
uh, patients as disasters after disaster after disaster. And we don't make that transition to healthcare management. That's all we're going to be treating, disaster after disaster after disaster. And I would submit to you that any moment that you have with another human being is an opportunity for you to influence that person. And this just proves it, I think, remarkably, anecdotally. So, um, influence. What is influence? If you could define it, what is influence? Right? Any other, any other definitions? The impact. Impact, right? Um, any, other, any other definitions of influence? All right, I, I have here, and it's consistent with what you said, the c capacity to affect the behavior of someone, because what we're really looking for is someone to change their behavior, are we not? I mean, what got them in that condition in the first place was, quote unquote, bad behavior. Um, and again, getting back to the health message, you know, we have a health message that is extremely powerful that I've seen over the last 19 years. It has the capability of reversing type 2 diabetes completely. It has the uh, capability to reverse hypertension. It has the ability to make heart disease as rare as a two-headed twin. I mean, really, when, I mean, you saw the remarkable evidence, Dr. Is it how, um, uh, that he presented this morning. And you saw how these people's lives were changed. I see these people every day in the emergency room. And to me, it's amazing that you could go from 12 medications to six medications in, in a short period of time. To me, that is amazing. So um, the, uh, the problem is, I think we as physicians, we as healthcare people, dentists, nurse practitioners, physician's assistants, we as members of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, don't really believe our own health message. And I have another story. I've got a lot of stories. That's all I have, really. Um, this is what I call a, this is a story of a relative of mine. Can't get too detailed, but she's a relative of mine. And she's about 80 years old right now. And about a year ago, two years ago, she came to me and she says, you know, my doctor wants to start me on a statin, or on, I don't know, pravastatin, I forget what she said. Uh, she says, because my cholesterol is high and it's genetic. I said, well, well hold on. I mean, you, you fax me your uh, lab work every year. I said, last year, your cholesterol was like 170, was it not? She's like, yeah. I said, well, well how bad is it now? Well, I'll get it to you. Well, well, can you read it to me? Well, yeah, it's about it's a 210, 220, something like that. I, I don't have it with me, but it's, it's over 200. I said, so you're telling me that You've lived your life for 77 years with a cholesterol that is okay, and then all of a sudden at 78, 79, genetics just kicks in? I said, does that make sense to you? And she says, well, you know, you, you got a point there. So then I talked to her more about what she'd been doing. She hadn't really been exercising as she had been. She had really liberalized her diet, which is a nice way of saying she started eating poorly. And I said, you know what? You know exactly what to do. You need to start eating the way you know, you've been eating before. You need to start exercising again. So fast forward, her next visit, her cholesterol level is back down to where it was before. So I said, so what did your doctor say when you told them you hadn't taken any of that medication and you started exercising and eating correctly? She said, you know what, I didn't really didn't want them to feel bad, so I never told them. <laughs> so 
But, you know, the thing is, I want us to feel bad. You know, if you're living in a predominantly Seventh-day Adventist community and you're seeing a physician who is um, Seventh-day Adventist or exposed to Seventh-day Adventist who has knowledge or should have knowledge of the health message, and that's the message that you are giving patients, when the PDR, I think, even mentions that you have to counsel people on diet and exercise, and you don't even do that, you just say it's genetic, and then you hand them a prescription. You know, I don't think Dr. Howe was, was being um, revolutionary or being, you know, inflammatory when he said, you know, at some point, not counseling people on lifestyle medicine is, is malpractice. I think that time is now. I think that time has been malpractice for years if you're a Seventh-day Adventist, if you're a Christian who has a health message. So, so I think what we have to do is we really have to be read our Bible, read the messages that we have gotten, and be convicted and start living that life, that health message. If you're not living the health message, you're not going to tell anybody about the health message. All right, so, so how do we use our influence to affect positive change? There, there, are, actually, uh, there, there are actually six principles. I put down four um, that, I, that I use in the emergency room to uh, sort of try to inspire my patients to make change. And now, the purpose of them making change, the purpose of healthcare management, it increases your probability that your life is going to be prolonged. Would we all agree with that? Okay. It improves your quality of life. Would we all agree with that? It has improved mine. And, but the real thing is, it's, it's really to direct your patients to the author of life. And if you're not ultimately doing that, what are you really doing? So uh, the, the, first, uh, the first psychological principle that uh, influences individuals' ability to comply with the requests, comply with the requests, change their behavior, is what's called authority. Um, and a lot of this is gotten uh, from the book Influence, Science, and Practice. And um, there's a gentleman named Stanley Milgram who wrote a book in 1974 um, who basically did a series of experiments that I will summarize really briefly and try to make it clear. Basically, he was concerned about Nazi Germany, how so many people could go along with that government and, you know, not really do much of anything. And he developed a, a scientific experiment where um, people were told that they were delivering electrical shocks to other people. Um, now, the other people weren't really getting electrical shocks, but they acted like they were in distress. Um, and they could dial up the amount of the intensity of the shocks given. Um, and, uh, you know, from 100, 200, 300, 400. <coughs> and there was a gentleman there in a white coat with a clipboard with a pen. And if they were resistant or if they were hesitant to delivering further shocks, he'd say, continue. He wouldn't say it's okay or anything like that. He would just say in a, a voice, continue, um, go ahead. And uh, before Stanley Milgram actually did the experiments, he, uh, he sort of polled his colleagues, how many people you think would dial up the, uh, the electricity to, to a really high amount? And a vanishingly small percentage of his colleagues said, oh, no, people won't do that. And he found, like, actually most people, even when they heard cries of, supposed pain, because the people weren't really in pain, even when people said, I have a heart condition, 
with a person with a white coat standing over them saying continue, people would continue to administer shocks to these people who are supposedly in distress. So the, the, one psycholo the first psychological principle is authority. Um, you're an expert. If you're a physician, if you're a nurse practitioner, physician assistant, if you're a medical missionary, you have a certain amount of expertise and authority. Um, and you could use that authority for good or for evil, but people see you as an authority figure. Uh, the problem ha occurs when you have what I call dueling experts. You know, when, when a physician tells a patient that you think is absolutely something that is absolutely false, um, well, what, what do you do then? Um, well, then you have to basically say that, well, they may be an expert in one arena, but maybe they're not an expert in this arena. I'll give you an example. Um, I see patients a lot who talk about, you know, my doctor told me that this is an appropriate diet for me. And I don't attack their doctor directly. I work in the emergency room, so I have to be, you know, I have to be very careful about what I say about physicians because I'm working in a community. I've worked there for 10, 11 years. I have a good relationship with the physicians. And I go, I said, well, I don't know what your doctor's experience has been, but I'll tell you about my experience. I went to medical school for four years, and I got two days of nutrition in four years. I would, you know, I would sort of assume that your doctor got two days or less um, and what I've actually learned about nutrition and exercise, I learned by, you know, reading my own research. So, you know, if your doctor told you something, he's, he's not a, he's an, he's an, he may be an expert at managing your medications, he may be an expert at surgical care and post-surgical care, but he really isn't an expert on nutrition. I know this because we've gone through the same type of training. So that's a nice way of putting it, okay? Um, and then you can tell them what they need to know then you can tell them what needs to be done. Um, the, next, the next sort of principle that's sort of hardwired in our brain is the principle of reciprocation, which is basically we are hardwired to return favors. You know, like if I give you a small gift and then I came back to you and asked you for a loan, guess what? You'd be more prone to give me a loan because of that small gift. It's just sort of hardwired. It's almost like you can't do anything about it. So, you know, Christ talks about a person giving someone a, a glass of cold water or a glass of water that, you know, they will get a reward. That is actually true. I mean, anything you can do to help a patient. Uh, give them a warm blanket in the ER. Give them a glass of water. You know, you're going to counsel them about health later on. You, may, you, wanna, you want them to kind of think you're a nice person, you know, that you really care about them. And if you do those sort of really small things, you'll care about them. Yes, you took away their migraine headache by giving them some medication, but guess what? You also gave them a blanket, or you got the nurse to give them a blanket, or you brought it in yourself, and you covered their mother, you know? And then, then they listen to you. Because, you know, the thing with the ER, like, people don't come by ones. They come by, like, fours or fives. Like, the, the grandmother comes in with the grandkids and the, and the sons and daughters. So reciprocation is something that I use every day in the emergency room. Um, and, you know, it's, it's uh, I, I'm not saying you have to use these methods in sort of a cold, callous way, because if you have a relationship with Christ, you know, you're, you're gonna want to do these things. And, and I would submit to you, you want to do them yourself, because if you have a nurse do it, well then it's the nurse that's a nice person. You really want to do it yourself. If you think someone's cold, if you think someone needs a glass of water, and you can get it, and it's not a busy ER, why not? Because you know what? That's why you're there. You're there for the heart attack, and you're also there to, uh, you know, give people a picture of Christ.
Um, the other thing is uh, likability. Um, we're hardwired um, to like people who have certain characteristics. Like if you're attractive, people are physically attractive, they make more money, they're more likely to get elected to office. Um, similarity, we like people who we're similar with. So, hey, you're from Michigan? I lived in Michigan. Yeah, where'd you live? You lived uh, where? Bering Springs? Hey, guess what? I got a mom that lives there. Or you live in Muskegon? Hey, you know, I drove through there. You know, just sort of building some sort of similar background, some sort of personality trait. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's something that you can use on a daily basis, and it's something, again, that people are hardwired that, you know, they, you're like me, I like you. Um, now, here's, here's something that, I, that, that is used sometimes. We get a lot of difficult patients in the emergency room. Um, we get people who are intoxicated. We get people who are uh, acute psychosis, which, you know, you've got to kind of sedate them first before you can do anything. And uh, um, I, I, I have something that helps me like patients. And, you know, I tell you, influence is sort of a two-way street. And I, I, you know, you could, you, could, you could always imagine that Christ died for this person like they died for you. That's like the most powerful. And then there are other things that I use. I have, you know, I have an uncle that I, that I love. He's, he's not alive right now. But if I see an older gentleman, I go, you know, that guy could be Uncle Peter, you know. Or that guy could be my nephew. And I imagine that that guy is like my uncle or my nephew or my niece. And you know what? That guy is someone's uncle. That young person is someone's nephew. That, that person is someone's niece. So you start imagining that, and you know, some, some, some days your, your family members have bad days, you don't like them that much, but you still love them. And you start using those techniques, it's, it's a two-way street. And then uh, the other, the other uh, um, psychological pr principle is what I call, uh, what, what is called consistency. Um, you really have to challenge people to make a stand. Um, I have a friend who's a sociologist, and he told me that, you know, he couldn't find the papers. I emailed him this week, but I emailed him. I said, David, is it really true that one of the most effective ways to get a patient to stop smoking is for a physician to tell them to stop smoking? He emailed me back, yes, Don, that is true. He's been saying this for years. He says, I can't find the research right now, but it's absolutely true. One of the most powerful things um, that can get a patient to quit smoking is a physician say, simply saying, you know, I think you should stop smoking. Um, think about it if you start expanding that to, you know, I think you should eat better. You know, I think you should exercise. You know, I think it's a good thing that you attend church on a weekly basis. I mean, these are things that, that you can say. Um, I, I work in a, uh, I don't work in a Christian facility. I, kind of, I work in Florida, which is, you know, kind of in the Bible Belt, and I've, I've prayed for patients in the ER. Um, I've had nurses pray for patients in the ER, and I always ask, is it okay if I pray? Um, and in the South, it's like, it's okay. So, I mean, you could do these things on a, on a daily basis. Um, now, now, going to number two, there, there's, there's what I call the urgency of now, the urgency of now. And I wanted to, to try to sort of portray that these things, I really don't want you to think about them. I want you to really start challenging patients now. I want you to really start sort of counseling patients now. I want you to really start 
making some lifestyle changes in your own life now because that's going to affect you and it's going to affect the lives of others. And uh, remember, we are all emergency care providers. You know, people's souls are in jeopardy, their health is in jeopardy, and what you say can make a profound difference in that person's life. Um, I've got a Bible here, and I'm going to read from you Genesis 19, verse 3, and also Genesis 19, verse 16. And it talks about Lot when the uh, angels came and uh, Sodom was going to be judged, was going to be destroyed. And, uh, you know, they, they, the angels came, came as strangers. Lot was sitting at, at the gate of, uh, of Sodom, and he invited the angels to come to his home. But did he just say, hey, guys, you want to come home with me? And they said, no, 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 okay. Did he do that? If you read verse 3, it says, but Lot, but he insisted strongly. Insisted strongly indicates that, you know, they were at first begging off, saying, you know, it's okay, we can sleep out in the open. But he said, no, you really need to come home with me. Would you say that's a sense of urgency? I want you to notice also um, Genesis 19, verse 16. Now it's kind of reversed. It says, you know, Lot went, he talked to his sons-in-law. They thought he was joking. Um, they didn't want to leave. And he was sort of hesitant to leave. And verse 16 says, and while he lingered, the men took hold of his hand, his wife's hand, and the hands of his two daughters, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. That's Genesis 19, verse 16. So in this whole story, it indicates to me that Lot was hesitant. Lot didn't want to leave. Um, this was probably communicated to his family. And the angels actually saw what his intentions were. And they really helped him to make that choice, didn't they? You know, there, there, there are going to be some patients like that, that you're going to have to do a lot. And they may not respond the first time. They may not respond the second time. They may not respond the third time. And I know I don't do care where patients keep coming back to my office, but we see a lot of return visits in the emergency room. So I actually have the opportunity of counseling people over a period of time, especially since I've been working there for 10 years. And if you're consistent in your message, if you're urgent in your message, lives will be saved. I want to read something from Patriarchs and Prophets for you. Um, by Ellen G. White. It says, it's from Patriarchs and Prophets, page 166. I think you might have the reference at the bottom of your handout. If Lot himself had manifested no hesitancy to obey the angel's warning, but had earnestly fled toward the mountains without one word of pleading or remonstrance, his wife also would have made her escape. The influence of his example, the influence of his what? His example would have saved her from the sin that sealed her doom. But his hesitancy and delay caused her to lightly regard the divine warning. While her body was upon the plain, her heart clung to Sodom, and she perished with it. You know, our church is dying of unnecessary disease because we lightly regard the health message and refuse to be strong advocates for it by living it ourselves, teaching it consistently, and recommending it. Our young people leaving churches because we, like Lot, we say one thing. We say the Lord is coming. But the influence of our example 
shows that we're living in the world. You know, there, there's a dying world out there, and, and the goal is to save souls. We are all medical missionaries. No matter what our titles, no matter what our degrees, we are, we are not evangelical physicians. We are medical evangelists. And the, uh, the title is evangelist. So everyone sitting here is an evangelist. And our goal is to use every tool that we have in our armamentarium to bring people to Christ. I'll just read one last, uh, one last quotation, and this is going to be from, um, I think you have the, uh, the reference there as well. Councils on Diets and Foods, page uh, 73. The gospel of health has, has able advocates, but their work has been made very hard because so many ministers, presidents of conference, and others in positions of influence, that's us people, okay? We can't, we can't blame only the ministers and the presidents of conferences. We have to assume some responsibility for the way things are. Have failed to give the question of health reform its proper attention. They have not recognized in its relation to the work of the message as the right arm of the body. While very little respect has been shown to this department by many of the people and by some of the ministers, the Lord has shown His regard for it by giving it abundant prosperity. When properly conducted, the health work is an entering wedge, making a way for other truths to reach the heart. When the third angel's message is received in its fullness, health reform will be given its place in the councils of the conference, in the work of the church, in the home, at the table, and in all the household arrangements then the right arm will serve and protect the body. But while the health work has its place in the promulgation of the third angel's message, its advocates must not in any way strive to make it take the place of the message. So my challenge to you today is healthcare management, that's what we all should be in. And healthcare management, again, is not disaster management from day to day to day to day, but introducing people to health principles that increase the probability that they're going to live longer, increase the probability, markedly increase the probability that they're going to improve their quality of life, and introduce them to the author of life, Jesus Christ. So anyone with questions? Yes, sir. Right. You see, um, yep. Because they, don't they seem to respond more readily when they are in pain than if they're not? They, if they're not in pain, they'll put it off. But if they're in pain and you right. let them know what the pain is coming from and you take care of it then and there, right. it's easier for that person to be receptive to treatment right. if, you, if you focus in that way. So I, I'm saying this to say that as healthcare professionals, as Seventh-day Adventists, yeah. we all minister to God. But right. You know, um, the best way for us to reach people is when they are in a situation like most people are in the country today. Right. It's a crisis right. situation out there. Most, most of people's economy and their lives and so on. Mm -hmm. So I think 
Yeah, the, uh, the urgency of now. You know, Martin Luther King, in his, uh, um, in his address on the, uh, during the Civil Rights Movement in 1963, he talked about what, what, what's called the fierce urgency of now. And he used that term to mean that, you know, gradualism hasn't really worked with this promise of equality for all men. It's been 100 years since the Emancipation Proclamation. And he talked about the fierce urgency of now. I mean, I think, I think you can see that concept in the story that I told about Bob and the story that you see about Lot. There is this fierce urgency of now where if you wait, lives can be lost. And the fierce urgency of now also means, like you said, Dr. Lawrence, that people are willing to listen to you when you've addressed their primary concern about their health. They're willing to listen to you about anything you say. Um, you know, it's, uh, I'll tell you, I had a, it was actually a week ago, I had a patient, uh, I walked into her room, I'd walked in earlier, and she kind of looked at me, and then I walked back and she says, I remember you. And I always think, okay, did I kill your relative or something? You know, I said, are you okay? She says, yeah, you saved my husband's life. And I said, um, you mean God saved his life? She kind of gave me this look like, you know, if, we're in Florida now, so if, I, if she kind of believed in God, I, I think she would have said, yeah, you know, you're right, God saved. She says, no, 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 you saved his life. I said, you mean God used me to save your husband's life? So that is a small sort of little, you know, story where if she's an atheist, she's not going to say anything bad about me because she thinks I did a great favor to her husband. You know, she says, he went to all these physicians, and you did a CAT scan of his head, and you made him go to the hospital. So the, the point is that every action that we do um, in the ER especially, I pray before I go to the emergency room because I don't have all the knowledge. Emergency medicine is such a broad um, area. You know, I have to constantly keep reading. Things are constantly changing. And I always pray, you know, God be with me if I don't know something. You know, make me smart tonight because, you know, anything can come through that door. And let God also use you to witness to other people because you're right. Um, when you do that for people, they are open to basically anything you say. If they like you, they're open to anything you say. And I, I think we're wasting these opportunities. Yes, sir. Yes. Right. And the truth is, that's what God does. Right. It's a form of love. That is correct. My observation is those that are not Christians mm -hmm. tend to get cynical about health care. Uh huh. And they're just doing the job. Right. Uh, it seems to me that doing my health care job with care of people. Right. Right. That is, that is, that is true. Uh, you know, it's, um, you know I, don't, I don't pray with everyone I see in the emergency room. I don't, you know, it's uh, certain, you know, the spirit impresses you. But I think there's always something you can leave with a patient. There is always something you can leave with a patient about their health. Um, there's always a way you carry yourself, which is an example. Um, there's always a way you interact with the nurses at work, which is an example. You've got to realize your workplace is not the same place when you're not there. Your workplace should be totally transformed when you're present. I mean, there should be something noticeable when you go to work. People should be like, wow, you're working today. I really like it when you work. If you're going to work and people are like, oh boy, showed up for work again. 
that's not a good sign because if you're spending time with Christ, you're taking Christ with you and you're transforming the workplace. And, and I think we all, you know, we all read our Bibles, we all, you know, we all pray, but I think I want us to get that sense of urgency that you know, now's the time. If, if you're thinking about something, you're thinking, well, you know, maybe I should put it off. You know, maybe find a, find a, uh, uh, a way to, to present that. And what I typically do, I don't, I don't go into someone who's having pain, who broke a bone, who uh, whatever. I, I don't go in there and I, I don't say, you know what, you need to stop smoking. You know, I give them pain medication first. I splint their arm. And then I'll say, hey, you know what? You know, when I was doing the history, I noticed that you smoke. What, what do you think about that? I'll, I'll just say it like that. And those, you know, a lot of times, you know, I need to quit. Have you ever quit before? Yeah. How long, how long had you stopped smoking? About a year. I said, well, you know, what do you think about quitting again? Is, it's going to be good for your lungs, good for your heart. It's going to be good for this bone that, that needs to heal. And I've had people say, you know what? My wife and I, we were planning on quitting in like two weeks. I said, great. How about quitting today? I mean, you could quit today or quit in two weeks, but how about quitting today? You talk to them about, you know, make sure you don't hide the cigarettes on top of the fridge, make sure you get rid of everything. And at that point, you can kind of talk to them about ways of, of stopping smoking. And that, that's like a five minute, at most a 10 minute conversation because they want to go home at the end of the visit. They don't want to stay there and talk to you all night, usually, usually. Um, so every, every patient is an opportunity to say something, uh, to do something. And that's what I, I just want to encourage. Yes, sir. Do I feel guilty for billing? I work for a huge company um, that hires me. And um, I've actually, you know, I, I'm so far removed from the billing. I've actually written to the medical director from time to time and asked them to, like, you know, write off certain bills. But I, I am really far removed from the billing, which is not, I don't think, a good thing. So. Um, but I also work uh, um, a few days in a clinic where I have control over the bill. And you know, sometimes I'll, I'll just see a patient and say, I'm not going to bill you for this visit because I just sort of talked to you. I really didn't draw any blood. I didn't do anything. So you know, it's, uh, it's a good point, something I really have to think about a little bit more. Yes, sir. OK. Right. I have, I have not gotten any Bible studies out of my contacts. No, I have not done that. Um, I see myself more as a seed planter in that particular arena. Um, and when we go on medical mission trips, I see our group as seed planters. I mean, we've gone to places in South Africa where there was no church whatsoever. We did a uh, medical mission, and then the plan of that local conference was to build a church in that area. So you go in and you do that work, and then the people are like, oh, those are the same people that had these people come from America and give us care, and now they're having a crusade, so we're going to go to them. So that, that's what I, I see it as. Um, uh, we, uh, my wife and a friend of ours, we have this ministry now, an exercise ministry, where um, we exercise every Tuesday and Thursday, and that's more of a, a prolonged thing where our plan is you know, make it a very social thing, um, we have like a, a health nugget and we have a spiritual um, application. Um, and at some point, our goal is to introduce like a formal Bible study for people who are interested. But right now we're kind of building that relationship, which is real difficult to do in the emergency room. You know, it's, um, it's uh, I mean, you have such a brief moment, but 
Um, and that was my frustration too. At some point, at one point, I even said, you know, should I even be doing this? But if you're not doing it, there's some other guy doing it who's telling them stuff that ain't right. So, you know, I would say you're doing a great work in the emergency room. It's a very brief moment, but those people will remember you. I live in a place, Ocala, Florida, that's 50,000 people, and I can't walk around town. I have to wear a baseball cap because people know me. And I always go, they'll say, hey, doc, you took care of me. And I always go, everything okay? You know, that's my first, and they go, yeah, I'm doing okay. okay. Actually, one time, a uh, uh, state trooper came by, and he shook my hand, he said, Doc, I just want to thank you for taking care of my mother. I go, well, how's she doing? Oh, she died. And I said, but well, he says, you know, but she was, you know, she was 90 years old, and, and I, I just appreciate the way you took care of her. So, you know, it's, um, um, you, you have an opportunity to talk to people by, by taking care of them. Yes, sir. Right. It's probably sometimes just as important or more important than getting right diagnosis necessarily. Right. Because people remember mm -hmm. the quality of care that you provide and the way in which you do it. Right. A lot of compassion to children. Right. And that can go along with the healing process. It can. More than necessarily diagnosing the right thing and giving the right medication. Right. I mean, it's, you know? you're, you're correct. And, um, you know, people come in, they, first of all, they want to know that you care about them. And they'll come in and say, you know, I have this condition. I went to a neurologist. I went to my family doctor. I went to, and, and they don't know what's going on. And then I go, well, what do you think, what do you want me to do at 2 o'clock in the morning? So, so I sit and I listen and I ask questions. And amazingly, sometimes you actually come up with the correct diagnosis. But most times you don't. And what you say is, you know what, my goal here is to make sure you don't have like a disaster. You don't have uh, emergency going on. You know, this has been going on for like two, three years. And maybe what we need is a plan. You know, we can work on a plan to try to figure out what's going on with you. And in that plan, you can also, you can incorporate, you know, I noticed that, you know, I talked to you about, you know, what you eat, because I do that a lot now. Um, and, uh, you know, you, you could, you know, you have all these allergies. You, you may want to consider, like, not using any dairy products, you know, because, and I, and I talked to them about that. So you, you have an opportunity to talk to them, and who knows, who knows what will happen. This media was produced by Audioverse for Amen, Adventist Medical Evangelism Network. If you would like to learn more about Amen, please visit www.amensda.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.